welcome back to another episode of the Year Polygamy Podcast. I'm your host, Lindsay, and today we are bringing you the second part of the first part of our series about the Word of Wisdom. If you tuned into last episode, we listened to the history of Joseph Smith and how he interacted with the temperance movement and the creation of the Word of Wisdom also incorporated into the Doctrine and Covenants. Today we're going to go into the frontier period and sort of talk about how Brigham Young comes into all of this. Now, of course, there is a time period between Joseph Smith's death and Brigham Young's arrival into the Salt Lake Valley as prophet. And in those times, we have a lot of information on Word of Wisdom uses from apostles from one source, and that is Wilford Woodruff. In his journal, he records almost daily, but certainly several times a month, of tea he drinks, coffee he drinks, or ale he drinks. Tea seemed to be a favorite of Wilford Woodruff, who would later be the president of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints at the turn of the century. We also know that William Clayton had his own sort of battles with alcohol in his camp. Their journey over to, you know, to the valley was kind of a rough one towards the end. They were getting low on supplies. And, you know, William Clayton really resented that one of the members in his camp was hiding his rations, his food rations, in their stashes of tea and coffee. So we also know that that was something that was happening at that time. Now, enter the years 1847, 48, and 49. This is where we have a lot of people coming in on this you know, drive from Brigham Young to enter the Salt Lake Valley to gather here. And so as the saints are coming through, so are miners and travelers and soldiers. And so, of course, they set up little mom and pop shops with alcohol, a little saloons, temporary saloons in all of their little camps. So by January of 1850, Brigham Young realizes that he has to have a hand in this, get this regulated. So we're going to use a lot of Claire Barris's research again. This is the research that uh, we shared in the first one, first episode of this series and that we shared in last episode. And I'm going to link to it here as well. It's just the draft that he's made on the Word of Wisdom. He says, during January 1850, the self-designated state of Deseret provided essential government services in the Great Basin. A bicameral General Assembly with the Senate and House of Representatives met in January 1850 and intermittently thereafter to enact ordinances having the force of law. Taxes on property and liquor were authorized, gambling was suppressed, and the use of water, timber, and other natural resources was regulated. The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints was incorporated, as were the Perpetual Immigrating Fund and the University of Deseret. It's also at this time that we hear about two little taverns that start up. Um, I made a I made a Facebook post about this the other day. So if you've seen that timeline, you can see kind of some of the things that I'm talking about. But we know that uh, some sources in Utah say that there were at least two breweries in 1850, Beecham Blair and City Brewing. Now, when we say breweries, we're talking little small, like, you know, people doing stuff in their the back of their little shed because 1850s Utah was still kind of a rough place. Claire Barris says that in Wilford Woodruff's journal in 1850, he talks about giving tea to the council and giving it to other Mormons. So he's still drinking and sharing tea. He comes home from Portland and he's with a camp of people. And I guess the camp got a little rowdy. And so they were, the camp comes up with an order of uh, strongly opposing drunkenness, swearing, gambling, whipping oxen, 
Then uh, the captain of the company sustained the remarks by Woodruff. On July 4, 1850, the General Assembly of the State of Deseret held a joint ses- session and passed an ordinance taxing the sale of liquor at the rate of 50%. So they start taxing this liquor at 50%. We know that in December of 1850, this is before they have the tabernacle built. They have the old bowery where we talk about things, some things that had happened you know, in early Mormon Utah. So they're in the Bowery and I guess Brigham Young delivers a sermon and here's what uh, Woodruff has to say about it. Quote, his text was truth. He spoke of the desire for tobacco, alcohol, coffee, tea, and the desire for such things was because they contained poison and excited the nervous system and it was death and not life and many useful remarks were made. End quote. Also, this is a fun fact that Claire puts in his timeline that Levi Hancock had three known children and one of them was named Temperance and she was residing in Salt Lake City in 1850. Even though Brigham Young had talked about the Word of Wisdom and he would go on to talk about the Word of Wisdom in council meetings that year, it didn't seem to deter Wilford Woodruff. He still talks and reports the same sort of drinking behaviors in his journal. On June 22, 1851, he records, quote, Sunday President Young addressed the saints as follows. A word more upon lawsuits. There would not be a lawsuit in this valley if all men would do right and were saints, but the net has gathered all kinds, good, bad, and worse. Let 12 men get drunk in this community and it ruins the place in the estimation of good men. We have to bear the character of the drunkard. A few stinking fish in the net defile and the whole net stinks, and it creates a prejudice against it. Those who were acquainted with Joseph know that if he dealt any in temporal things, it created a prejudice against him. He bought many goods to help carry on the public works, but the people were ready to get it away from him. So it is now, end quote. That's in June of 1851. By September of 1851, Brigham Young gives another sermon as is recorded in Wilford Woodruff's journal. Quote, Brigham Young said that I put the motion, will the sisters vote to quit using tea and coffee? The brethren have voted not to use tobacco. I will speak of the bishops. I spoke of them yesterday and reproved them sharply. Some wanted me to offer an apology to them. I will not. I will see them in hell before I will do it. If this people do not do better than the bishops have, they will go to hell. And if you do not better than you have done, you will go to hell. President Young said he wished all people to pay their tithing to the bishops of their ward. He referred to the remarks made by Father Smith on the Word of Wisdom. He said $50,000 had been spent in the valley during the past year for needless things for coffee, tea, and tobacco. And many other remarks were made by President Young, end quote. This conference was where Brigham Young actually asked people to covenant and accept and obey the word of wisdom as a commandment and to accept excommunication for non-payment of tithing. Church leaders do not consistently enforce either of these practices, even though they're voted in until the 20th century. Here is what they would incorporate September 22nd, 1851, the sixth general epistle of the presidency of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints from Great Salt Lake Valley to the saints scattered throughout the earth. Greeting, beloved brethren, the conference voted to observe the word of wisdom and particularly to dispense with the use of tea, coffee, snuff, and tobacco. And in this thing, as well as many others, what is good for the saints in the mountains is good for saints in other places, and if all who profess to be saints would appropriate the funds lavished on luxuries and articles unwise to use to the benefit of the public works, we would soon see another temple of the Lord, end quote. Sometime during that year, poor brother Alman Babbitt, he was again disfellowshipped for, quote, profanity and intemperance in the streets of Canesville for corrupting the morals of the people by giving them liquor to beguile them from the path of duty and honor, end quote. Elman Babbitt and, and the sauce couldn't quite give it up. 
The spring of 1852, Wilford Woodruff records that he has planted wine grape slips in his, in his home, and he would plow the fields to grow his little vineyard. On April 7, 1852, he records, quote, Brother Parley Pratt said I was engaged in the best work I could be engaged in. I feel that we are bringing the people to a knowledge of the things of God. When I have traveled among them, they have treated me very kind. I called upon a chief one day and I was hungry. His squaw went to work and dried some wheat heads by the fire, rubbed out the wheat in her hands and put it in smooth stone and took another smooth round stone and ground it fine and made me a cake of it and baked it by the fire. While she was doing this, her daughter made me some good wine out of some berries that she had preserved. So I had bread and wine for my dinner, all manufactured in a few moments. They rejoiced at our visit with, with them, and many of them had been baptized, and in some instances, tried to imitate our practices. In one instance, a company of three came to visit us, highly painted up and dressed in the best they had. When they came to us, we told them the Mormons did not paint. They went to the creek and washed it off. We felt that much good is beginning to be done among that people." End quote. At this same time, William Clayton is reporting drinking beer as if it was just an average thing. So even though the word of wisdom was voted in, here we have Wilford Woodruff and William Clayton showing that they are not exactly keeping it as a commandment. At least their understanding of it might not make sense to how we would interpret keeping a covenant. On August 21st, 1852, Wilford Woodruff would be out traveling, and he said that the Shoshones, or Snake Indians, came into the city today to make peace with the Utah and Walker's company. They smoked the pipe of peace and shook hands in friendship and fellowship. They have been at war for many years, but through the wise course of Brigham Young, they are brought to peace, end quote. So we know that they smoked uh, the peace pipe with the leaders. On November 8, 1852, it's recorded that President Heber C. Kimball, Willard Richards, Thomas Bullock, William C. Staines, James Ure, James W. Cummings, Samuel L. Sprague, William W. W. Phelps, each with a wife, one wife, met in the temple room. The brethren anointed each other. The wives were anointed by Sister Elizabeth Ann Whitney and Eliza R. Snow. Afterwards, all partook of cakes and wine, spoken tongues, etc. And this is recorded in the journal history. By July 24, 1854, several sermons start being delivered. The first is by Brigham Young. It's entitled... The word of wisdom, especially suited to infants and youth, privations in Missouri, necessity of an integrity, and strife for excellence, responsibility of parents. The following year, Ezra T. Benson gave a sermon called The Word of Wisdom, and you can find these in the journal discourses. George A. Smith gave a sermon entitled Ordaining Young Men to Office, The Word of Wisdom. Orson Pratt gave one on May 20th, 1855, called Trial of the Saints, Redemption of Zion, Second Coming of Christ, The Word of Wisdom. Sometime during that year, Brigham Young was injured in a Christmas Day street fight between a group of Salt Lake City citizens and drunken soldiers. And so, you know, he feels particularly upset that there was a fight on, on his streets. Francis M. Lyman wrote that, quote, As a 15-year-old freighter, Marion took to drinking and found that I really liked it, though it was a miserable stuff, and I wondered we were not poisoned by it. Freighters generally do their praying, if any, before they leave home or after they return, so nothing of that kind takes their attention while on the road, end quote. Now, there's an interesting note in here that I appreciate that uh, Claire Barris brings up. We've talked about the life and death of Parley P. Pratt. It's one of the most interesting stories in Mormonism, I think. It's, it's got all of the markers of an Old West tragedy. And the gist is Parley P. Pratt takes a woman who is already married as a plural wife. Her name is Eleanor McLean. And 
she is a Mormon and the fact that she's a Mormon bothers her husband, but the fact that he's an alcoholic bothers her. So in her mind, she gets to marry Woodruff. Now you have to remember that frontier relationships could be like this. You didn't really have to seek a formal divorce. You could just abandon your spouse. And that's what she does. And she marries marries Parley P. Pratt. Her husband doesn't like that. And he eventually guns down Parley P. Pratt and stabs him, murders him in Arkansas. So that happened in part because of his alcoholism. We also get this apocryphal story of Porter Rockwell, which is uh, that the widow of Joseph Smith's brother, Don Carlos Smith, had lost all of her hair from typhoid fever. And so Porter Rockwell considered himself Samson. Joseph Smith told him he was. He believed the power was in his hair. So he cut off, he cuts his hair off to provide Don Carlos Smith's wife with a wig. And he claims that he can no longer, after he cuts his hair, control his drinking and swearing. A likely excuse, Brother Rockwell. What's so crazy about sourcing this story is you can read this like on LDS.org and they never name who the woman was. It's Agnes Colbreth Smith, who we've talked about on this podcast. But it's just kind of funny that, you know, Porter Rockwell believes this myth that, you know, having his hair protects him from swearing and drinking. But once it was gone, man, the drinking and swearing came back. By 1855, 13 states had adopted dry statutes restricting the manufacturing and consumption of alcohol. This early temperance movement was stalled by the Civil War, according to Claire Barris, during which time most of these early laws were repealed. However, the issue was not forgotten. In 1856, I found a source from a branch president in Beaver. He was sent to go down to southern Utah, and what they do is they set up a house of entertainment, you know, built by the branch president, and the Desert News reported, quote, the tavern would be a great accommodation to the traveling public. So that happens in 1856. Also, the Hot Springs Brewery Hotel, started by Porter Rockwell, comes to life. Now, some people say that's Utah's first brewery, but as you'll note that I already said in 1850, there were two breweries, Beach and Blair and City Brewery brewing. It's hard to find which source is accurate. I've, I've seen sources uh, on both and they just keep citing the same old one source over and over. I think most likely what might have happened is Porter Rockwell operated sort of a low-key brewery, the city brewery, and it sort of grew into the Hot Springs Brewery. But if anyone has any evidence that which brewery was the actual first I would love to hear that. We know that Brigham Young is still drinking alcohol in spite of, you know, trying to make it a commandment years earlier. On August 26, 1856, Brigham Young's office journal records, quote, Brother Brown, lately arrived from Canesville, left a bottle of wine of his own make made from the juice of the grapes for President Young. And they were using um, alcohol as remedies for several things um, at the time. So that, you know, they were still using teas and alcohol for that. On September 27, 1856, Apostle Wilford Woodruff records in his journal, quote, President Young said that Washakie, the Indian chief, had cut up the smoothest bad trick that I'd ever heard of. So Brother Robinson related the circumstances as follows. Washakie, with several other Indians, came into a store and ordered him to give them some spirits. He told them he had none to sell. They undertook to get it by force, and Rob- Robinson pulled them out of the store. He went away and soon came back with a hundred Indians and pulled Rob- Robinson up to the floor and told him he must open the store and give him some liquor. So they forced him to open the door and deal out liquor to them. The hundred Indians drank 20 gallons and all got drunk, but behaved very well. They offered to pay for the liquor. He has been used to such sprees. Brother Robinson said that it was to do the same over again. 
he should present a pistol to him and try his luck at it, end quote. Around this time in 1856, it's said that in Nauvoo, a bunch of German settlers come in and establish a thriving wine industry in that town as well. In 1857, you have to understand the context of what is happening now. I would go back if you haven't gotten an order, like you should go in order on this podcast, and listen to the stories about the Utah War, the Mormon Reformation, 1857, what's happening with the politics, because this affects how Brigham Young is dealing with imports and exports. He is trying to develop a place where the Mormon saints will be completely sustainable and not dependent on any imports. And so it's in February 17, 1857, that Wilford Woodruff records in his journal, quote, Again, this power is manifest with President Brigham Young on the bank of the Missouri River at winter quarters, when the merchants brought up goods to sell to the brethren who were going to the mountains. Old Major Miller, the Indian agent, was surrounded by officers, and Miller, in order to show his great power, he told the merchants that owned some alcohol not to roll a barrel off from the boat that he would knock the head and split it upon the ground. President Young stepped up and told the man to roll it out, and if Miller spilled it that moment, I will spill his claret. He and all the officers turned pale. The liquor was rolled out and nobody was hurt. And other instances might be named where the power of the priesthood has made manifest, but these men have never boasted of it, nor never will. I made other remarks. I was followed by Lorenzo Snow, who spoke well, end quote. Another thing that is happening in 1857 is the arrival of the army. So something develops over the course of 1857, and it's what they call Whiskey Street. It was an alley within walking distance of church headquarters that even though there was the word of wisdom instilled with the saints, the U.S. troops arrived and all these non-Mormon influences made Whiskey Street, which now exists exists on Main Street between 200 and 400 South. On March 31st, 1853, Lyman White dies. He's about eight miles from San Antonio, Texas, and he dies from complications of alcohol and opium addiction, which was not unheard of in the frontier. It was actually pretty, pretty prominent. By 1858, Salt Lake can't fend off outsiders. They're coming up and setting up shop. Eventually, there would be a street for Chinese immigrants called Plum Street. There would be several alleys of prostitution houses and several alleys for alcohol. Apostle Wilford Woodruff records his feelings about this. On June 19, 1858, quote, In company with brother George A. Smith, C.F. Olfant, we visited the main peach orchards in the city and we saw 33 green tea plants growing in his garden, which seeds he picked out of imported tea. The plants had stood well in the winter well. We then called upon young wells in Carrington at their office. It had rained nearly all day. We never had as much rain in June as this year as we'd been in these rallies. Colonel Johnson made a proclamation to the inhabitants of Utah upon receiving news of peace. He then would say in September, I learned this morning there was another row on East Temple Street last week. Two gamblers shot each other. One was shot dead. The other had a ball in his head and one in his thigh. Another man was found dead in a woodpile. He was a dragoon who was unmercifully beat a few days ago by by a lieutenant. Thus we have the fruits of Christianity and civilization as manifest in the world introduced into our territory. Until the army and its attendants arrived here, we had no such scenes manifest in our midst. The priests and people and the whole government and the United States have tried hard to introduce those evils into our midst, which are so common in almost every city throughout the Gentile world, and they have now accomplished it for a season, and there is hardly a day that passes but there is drunkenness, gambling, swearing, fighting, and murder in the midst of the Gentiles in our streets." 
I spent the day in the office writing letters and compiling history. I wrote three, one to Ozem T. Woodruff and one to Sister Shua Moulton and one to Dr. J.M. Bernheisel. I requested Dr. Bernheisel to send me one bale of cotton yarn, 25 bunches of good sheeting, six hickory and six prints, one dozen reeds in the following numbers. And then he goes on to read those, end quote. So we know that there was conflict happening. The saints saw their city as cleaner and more proper and more behaved as other frontier towns, but clearly... They couldn't avoid all of the conflict. That fall, the leaders of the church give several lectures on how to not sell grain to outsiders, especially to the armies. Brigham Young would excommunicate several people that year for public drunkenness and things like that. And it, it was a problem. You know, people were trying to cope and they were starving in frontier Utah at this time. And so I imagine that people got easily addicted to some of these substances but the one force they couldn't control, even when they tried, was the army. The army came in and put a lot of money into Salt Lake City, but they also took a lot of alcohol. I just want to make a note about something that probably deserves its own podcast, the story of the handcart companies. I guess it fits into the word of wisdom because, you know, we have this disaster of the Martin and Willie handcart companies with people freezing to death and starving and really struggling, and they were supposed to be rescued. And it said that Brigham Young's priorities were to divert some resources to an, a wagon train that carried alcohol and tobacco for his personal supply, rather than rescuing the handcart pioneers, or rather delaying the rescue to the to the pioneers. So we'll talk about all of that in an upcoming episode, because that entire story deserves its own podcast episode. On January 21st, 1859, Wilford Woodruff records in his journal... Wilford Woodruff records in his journal, quote, I spent the whole day and night in the legislature till three and a half o'clock in the morning. The governor remained up until all the bills were signed except a liquor bill and united Shambip County with Tooele. Those are the only bill that the governor has vetoed. We turned off much business during the last 24 hours. We adjourned to meet on the second Monday in December 1859 in Great Salt Lake City, end quote. Now we're going to move up to 1860. On February 5th, 1860, Brigham Young's office journal records, quote, President Young addressed the third quorum of 70s. Most of his remarks were confined to the subject of drunkenness. He regretted very much its prevalence. He remarked it was not the drink that influenced men to wicked actions, but the drink weakened the body so the evil spirits had power over it, end quote. Later on that month, the journal would record, quote, President Young, in the course of his remarks, alluded to the zeal of Hiram Smith, brother of the prophet, his views on the word of wisdom, who prophesied that every saint who had chewed tobacco would apostatize. President Young observed he prophesied by Hiram Smith and not by the spirit of the Lord, and that he, Hiram, would eat about three pounds of fat pork in a day and yet be so severe upon a tobacco chewer. Upon other points observed that President Hiram Smith was a man of knowledge. Once Joseph told his brother Hiram if he would suffer him to dictate to him, he should lead the church to hell, and he would frequently sit and sneer at the remarks of his brother Hiram, which were frequently delivered to the congregation when they were weary with the remarks of the preacher that they had preceded him. End quote. By the summer of 1860, we get another recording in his journal where it says, quote, In the evening, Brother T. Ellerbeck came into the office and had some conversations about grape raising. Brother Carrington joined and conversed about making grape wine, end quote. We do know at this time that they're thinking about uh, grape growing because they're trying to open up a vineyard. And we'll get to that in just a minute. It's in 1860 with our timeline that we should be talking about the Dixie Wine Mission, but I'm actually going to do that as a separate episode. The last episode in the series to talk about 
the Nagel family because there's just a few other things of note and I want to get through this timeline for us. But next episode, we'll be talking about the Dixie Wine Mission. It's at this time, if you haven't, I think we've talked about this in the podcast before, but if you haven't read the Sunstone article before the beard about Joseph F. Smith, this is the time in the 1860s where he is accused of getting liquored up and beating his wife. You know, Joseph F. Smith would have been He's the son of Hiram Smith. He had sort of a traumatic upbringing, you know, as a young child looking over the bullet-ridden body of his father, Hiram, who was murdered. He has a lot of trauma from that that would carry with him in his life. He struggled from depression. And then he meets uh, his first wife, Levira Annette Smith, and the two of them had just had this, like, knock-out, drag-out romance. It reminds me of this Fiona Apple lyric where they say those two meeting is like a wishing well and a bolt of electricity. These two, it was passionate and it was insane. And Joseph F. Smith, you know, on several occasions, verbally abused her and physically abused her. She accuses him of taking her out on the street and beating her with a rope. He was saying, oh, it's not that bad. It wasn't that big around and she deserved it. She would eventually leave him and he would marry, you know, far more obedient plural wives, but he always seemed that he couldn't quite kick his love for Levira. In 1864, Joseph Dudler opens up a brewery in Parley's Canyon. And I guess if you go up to Parley's Canyon in Utah today, there's still a relic from Utah's brewing past. You can see on the hillside a stone foundation for this pub, which was a summer resort and a saloon. In 1862, this is when the IRS sort of gets incorporated and formed. And from 62 to 69, tax records collected by the IRS indicate Utah counted 37 distilleries, all owned by Mormons at the time. So Mormons were making beer and ale and liquor, and they were selling it to outsiders and partaking of it themselves a little bit. How do we know this? Because in 1868, Brigham Young kept a very extensive, expensive open tab. According to historian Will Bagley, quote, Salt Lake gadfly Josiah Gibbs noted that during 1868, when Salt Lake City controlled all liquor sales, Brigham Young purchased $128.25 worth of liquor strictly for entertainment. And, you know, Gibbs claims that he used tithing funds to pay for it. That same year, the Desert News itself spent $189.46 on liquor, end quote. In 1870, this is when the Mormon owned and operated Zion's Cooperative Mercantile Institution outlet uh, started selling alcohol. This is ZCMI. Anyone that's an old Mormon in Utah remembers ZCMI. It was a department store that I worked at until I was 18. And when I turned 18, that's when the church sold ZCMI and we were all so sad about it. The store is just such a favorite of mine. I would go with my grandma and my mom and we would go eat little egg salad sandwiches at the deli there. But in 1870, they were selling alcohol. Mark Twain came by in 1871, and he said that he noted that there was Valley Tan being sold. It was a kind of whiskey. Here's what he wrote in Roughing It, quote, Valley Tan is a kind of whiskey of first cousin or first cousin to it. It's of Mormon invention and manufactured only in Utah. Tradition says it's made of imported fire and brimstone, end quote. Valley Tan was becoming popular in the West because figures like Mark Twain and Porter Rockwell, you know, would drunkenly sing its praises. But it wasn't until 1873 that there was a session of the territorial legislature, which was completely Mormon dominated, in which they passed a motion that gave Brigham Young and only Brigham Young the right to manufacture and distribute spiritus liquors in Utah. 
people had been trying to do this before and monopolize the Utah liquor market. I guess um, 10 years before that, the Provo City Council tried to get a group responsible for Provo's liquor output and it was denied. But Brigham Young got it and he was the only one allowed to sell alcohol. We do know that ads in local newspapers indicate that liquor was being sold in ZCMI. Wholesale liquor distributor Schwab, McQuaid, and company advertised Kentucky bourbon and Pennsylvania rye in the Desert News. They were sold in all of the department stores. In 1871, a Mormon named Richard Bishop Margetts establishes a Utah brewery, which would operate for 50 years and be one of only four Utah breweries that survived Prohibition. There's also a strange note, and I can't find the original source, just an article by a local paper here that says in 1873, church meetings were held in a saloon, that the, quote, first documented church service at Alta is held in Harlow and King's Saloon. Another problem happens with alcohol in Utah County, and this is probably why it's taken Provo so long to get, you know, a bar there and just one bar, because in 1873... Provo gets all liquored up and then burned down. The Salt Lake Tribune reported that, quote, Ubel and company are erecting a building for a brewery just north of the Provo Bridge. They expect to be able to furnish handmade lager beer within three weeks. And after just a few years, it burns to the ground. They think it was somebody who did it on purpose. By 1874, we know that 10th Ward is helping own and operate the Salt Lake Brewery. Now, the origins of that are a little murky, too. But we do know that members of the 10th Ward considered ownership in the brewery and were running it as part of the ward. And this is part of my timeline, which I think is really fun. If you grew up in Utah and you know Utah folklore, when you're a teenager, you go to the cemetery and we have something called Emo's Grave. And you're supposed to knock on it and put your hand in this little place that goes for the urns. And, I, you know, the spirit of Emo is supposed to grab you or whatever. I can't remember the folktale. Well, Emo... The actual grave is Jacob Moritz, and Jacob Moritz is a man that owned and operated several very successful breweries in Utah. He was a non-Mormon, a Gentile, very respected um, Jewish businessman, and he made his money on these big breweries. So maybe have some more respect next time you go down to Emo's grave. In 1879, Mormon Henry Worley opens up a brewery in Logan, which would run for five years. In 1884, one of Utah's oldest and most thriving breweries, the Albert Fisher Brewery, opened up. Now, this was not owned by Mormons. I believe they were Catholic. In fact, Albert Fisher's widow donated her estate to the Catholic Church, I believe. But they used the water from the Jordan River for brewing, which I think is kind of fun. Because the Jordan River, who, you know, it's right through Salt Lake. I grew up by it as a kid. It was named by Heber C. Kimball was the same river that they used to float granite blocks of the temple for an occasional baptism. So that same river that's carrying pieces of the temple is also being used for beer. Uh, In 1886, Mormon Jacob Thur opened a brewery in Logan for one year, and it later gets incorporated as a Cache Valley brewery. In 1888, 7,000 pounds of wine is paid as as tithing in St. George. The vineyards in southern Utah were doing so well that, uh, you know, Leonard Arrington reports that by 1888, the office had collected more than 7,000 gallons of wine by early 1887. Because no one could really agree on what constituted a full tithing payment in wine, the church tithing clerk had to issue instructions on how to standardize the wine tithing process in a letter that was dated September 20th, 1879. In 1895, 
we are still having beer and liquor advertised in the desert evening news. In 1895, Joseph F. Smith doesn't want Utah to be a dry state. They're drafting the Constitution for Utah, and teetotalers want to declare Utah a dry state, and LDS Church President Joseph F. Smith opposes this because it would give the impression that Utah is a theocracy. At this time, in October 7, 1897, Apostle Franklin D. Richards writes in his diary, quote, Some complain the way tithing is expended. For example, Saltair stated about Garfield, Big Cottonwood, Warm and Hot Springs, and Saltair has been a great advertiser referred to bar liquor selling and to immoral practices, end quote. So some people don't like tithing being used for some of these buildings where they believe immoral practices are happening. Also a fun note, during 1897, Jamesy Talmadge, he did find that, quote, a good cigar produced a marvelous quieting over my overwrought nerves, end quote. What were his nerves? That year he resigned as president of the University of Utah, though he continued as a professor of geology. You know, anyone that's been in academia understands the politics and the tension there. And so clearly, Jamesy Talmadge found a cigar helped relieve that tension. On Thursday, May 5th, 1898, Apostle John Henry Smith records in his diary, quote, It's quite pleasant today. I went out to Beck's Hot Springs and took a bath. All the presidency in Lorenzo Snow, Franklin D. Richards, Brigham Young, Francis M. Lyman, myself, Geo Teasdale, George Teasdale, Heber J. Grant, Matthias F. Calley, and Abraham O. Woodruff met in the Council of the Temple. We talked over the question of admitting people who drink coffee and tea in the temple. By May 5th of 1898, they had come up with the decision. The first presidency and 12 discussed the word of wisdom. One member reads from the 12th volume of the journal Discourses, a statement by Brigham Young that seems to support the notion that the word of wisdom was a commandment of God. Lorenzo Snow, then president of the Council of the Twelve, agrees, saying that he believes the word of wisdom was a commandment and that it should be carried out to the letter. In doing so, he says, members should be taught to refrain from eating meat except in dire necessity— because Joseph Smith had taught that animals have spirits. Wilford Woodruff, then president of the church, says he looks upon the word of wisdom as a commandment and that all members should observe it. But for the present, no definite action should be taken except that the members should be taught to refrain from meat. The minutes of the meeting record that, quote, President Woodruff said he regarded the word of wisdom in its entirety as given of the Lord for the Latter-day Saints to observe, but he did not think that the bishops should withhold recommends from persons who did not strictly adhere to it, end quote. And Claire Bears points out in his timeline, you know, at this point they're talking about the word of wisdom as a revelation from the Lord. Joseph Smith, it was probably a slower process for them, but maybe in the context of the longer history, this is how, you know, prophets like, Lorenzo Snow, Franklin D. Richards, Lyman, and all those guys saw it. Wilford Woodruff would die that year in September 1898 in San Francisco. On October 1st, 1898, this is a fun reference from Claire Barris's timeline. Apostle Anthony W. Ivins writes in his diary, quote, Heber J. Grant had always paid his tithing with pleasure. $2 is spent in breaking the word of wisdom for every dollar paid in tithing, end quote. We have apostles talking about drinking. Rudger Clausen writes in his diary that they have sacrament wine blessed by President Snow. And though he's still recording that they're having conversations with the bishopric about the word of wisdom. And Rudger Clausen is really hoping that they can get leaders, local leaders like bishoprics, to set a higher example. Uh, the word of wisdom now becomes a way that you can set yourself apart a little bit 
more righteous and sanctified than an average ward member. If you're in the bishopric or in a priesthood calling, you need to refrain from alcohol. Salt air is causing a lot of problems. People are drinking and partying and getting into trouble. So on Friday, April 21st, 1899, Apostle Rudger Clausen records in his diary, quote, President Joseph F. Smith explained the object for which the salt air beach pavilion was built. It was that we might be able to control in some degree the amusements and pleasures of the young. There was to be no traffic in liquor and no Sunday trains. These rules had the effect of driving away patronage, but at the same time, interest had to be paid on the investment. It was therefore decided to rent bar privileges under stringent regulations and to put all attractions under proper control. All this was necessary to make the property pay interest on the investment." End quote. And I think that gives some insight into how the church really starts um, seeing that they have to control their own youth while allowing Gentile youth to, to pour their money into this. We still see that today. It's an age-old practice where the church is trying to control the liquor laws. At this point, we do know that Joseph F. Smith made a tour around Utah counseling little children to keep the word of wisdom. He would speak to several different groups of children in primaries and talk them talk to them about keeping the word of wisdom. So now he sees this as a wise thing to do, teach young children to stay away from it and people in the leadership. Of course, then we have an entire generation of people that grow up and believe that it's supposed to be practiced one certain way. They're still doing bread and wine as the Lord's Supper, even in 1899. At the very tail end of 1899, on December 27th, Carrie Nation, who was a leader of the American Christian Temperance Movement, raided and wrecked her first saloon in Medicine Lodge, Kansas. So some big activists are going to happen on this temperance movement, and it would make national headlines. Now, something to note that the Hotel Utah actually had a bar that it was serving as well, this would not have been unheard of. They sold alcohol, which is what is now the Joseph Smith Memorial Building. And we see mentions made of it throughout this time of, you know, some income coming in on the cost of alcohol. At this time, we still have recordings of apostles having bread and wine, even in the temple, doing sacraments in the temple, as they decide on important meetings or issues in the church, including their own authority. They would discuss it and then close with the Lord's Supper. On April 17, 1900, Claire Barris notes, quote, that the Brigham Young Academy president, Benjamin Clough Jr., along with a company of two teachers and about 20 students, leave Provo expecting to be gone for two years. Their destination is South America, where they hope to locate rivers, cities, and places that would throw light on the divine claims of the Book of Mormon. When the expedition reaches Spanish Fork, they are received with a brass band and a banquet in their honor. They are received with so many banquets that they don't cook their own food until 11 days into the journey. At the Mexican border, Clef negotiates with border officials to allow passage through Mexico while the rest of the group boards with church members in Thatcher, Arizona. Clef lingers in Mexico, hoping to marry a polygamous third wife, Florence Reynolds, daughter of George Reynolds, and one of his former students. Florence had been using his last name for the previous year. While Clef is in Colonia Diaz, he orders other expedition members to begin proselytizing in Thatcher. The students discover why Clef had prolonged his stay and become disheartened and angry. His assistant, Professor Walter Wolf, reacts to the news of Clef's delay by escaping to Nogales for an extended three-day alcoholic spree. Wolf, who had been told in a dream that he would find gold plates on the expedition and be able to translate them, later sells his mule to buy liquor. 
The students determined not to do any more missionary work and took every opportunity to visit with the young ladies and to attend the weekly dances in Thatcher. Apostle Heber J. Grant learns of the expedition's behavior while traveling in Arizona. He informs President Lorenzo Snow, who sends second counselor Joseph F. Smith, and Joseph F. Smith authorizes Clough's plural marriage but instructs the group to either disband or proceed on their own as a purely scientific group without church endorsement. Most return to Provo, but Clough and five others press on to Columbia. A week after arriving, all but one student, Chester Van Buren, returned to Utah. Van Buren remained in Columbia long enough to conduct scientific investigations. He was the only student that took this seriously. When he finally returns to Provo, his wildlife specimens become a prized collection. Clough is censored by the Board of Trustees for unwarranted use of authority and is kept as Brigham Young's Academy's president for only one more year. One of his last official acts is to change the name to Brigham Young University to BYU. So the guy that named BYU takes a group of students down to Mexico to do the scientific exploration, gets distracted by a lady, one of his former students, pisses off all of his students, and they go on an alcoholic binge. Quite the story. On Sunday, May 13th, 1900, uh, Apostle Rudger Clausen writes in his diary, quote, 2 p.m., continuation of conference, President A. Hatch presiding. The speakers were President A. Hatch, Apostle Reed Smooth, and myself. Topics treated, Hatch, financial condition of the stake was good and spiritual condition fair. The tithing paid in 1897 was $7,700. In 1898, $7,900. In $1899, $14,399. Word of wisdom, large number of missionaries from the Wasatch stake in the field. The saloon evil. Reed Smoot expressed a desire to magnify the office of an apostle, the great evil existing in the world, and to some extent among our people of restricting and limiting by unlawful means the number of children in our family. Warn the saints against the practice. The evil growing out of club life and secret societies. Word of wisdom, virtue among the Jews. The judgment of God being poured out upon the nations. End quote. So clubs are starting to bother them, that youth are going out to clubs and bars. We also know that Clausen reports in his diary that about this time, Elder Walter Romney is charged with being publicly intoxicated and gambling on his mission. They found out that he drank enough mild beer but didn't get drunk. He did go into a house of ill fame where he played a game of one or two cards while on the ship returning home. And that was reported to Charles Penrose, who had to help deal with that. At this point, Saltaire, which is the, I've mentioned it a few times, but it's it used to be a big old building by the Great Salt Lake of great amusement. It was going to be a great place with a dance hall and swimming, and you can see a lot of great photos of it in its heyday before it burned down. Uh, the church is really struggling what to do with this because, you know, it's causing, it's kind of a money suck for them. And it's causing so much drunkenness. So there's a lot of discussions in the early 1900s with that as well. From 1900 to 1920, there was a third party, which was never done particularly well in Utah, was a prohibition party, even which is kind of ironic considering the word of wisdom. The prohibition party, despite several attempts and occasional ballot status, were not successful in appealing to the Utah electorate, even though a lot of the state's residents at this time were starting to abstain from alcohol. Prohibition just was not accepted here up until 1920. 
We also know at this point that Heber J. Grant, who would eventually be a prophet, he was addicted to beer in his own words and, and had to kick it. And so we see a lot of the development for the LDS come out in his own demons. Thursday, March 21st, 1901, Rudger Claussen writes in his diary, quote, The clerk read a letter addressed by Reuben A. McBride to President Ira N. Hinckley of the Millard Stake. He asked to be reinstated in the church and have his former blessings and priesthood sealed upon him. The status of the case may be given in a few words. Some 13 years ago, he was cut off for the church for the crime of murder committed while under the influence of liquor. It seems that in a moment of anger, while intoxicated, he killed a man by the name of Speed for striking his son. He was tried, convicted, and sentenced to 10 years imprisonment, but after serving three years, was pardoned. He was since led a temperate life, is repentant, and desires reinstatement in the church. After some discussion, the matter was referred to the presidency and high council of the Millard Stake for action. It was, however, decided that in any event, he could only receive a standing in the church and would not be entitled to receive the priesthood. End quote. On Thursday, June 13, 1901, Claussen records in his diary, quote, In order to establish uniform procedure throughout the church relative to the manner of blessing, the bread and the wine, and the administration of the sacrament, it was decided that one and only one party officiating the blessing should kneel. Benediction by Apostle Brigham Young, Jr., end quote. So this is where they're starting to come up with more formalities on how things are done. In 1902, they are still talking about Saltaire. On Thursday, June 5th, 1902, Apostle Rudger Clausen records, quote, Apostle Grant moved that in view of the fact that no liquor was being sold at the beach, it be the sense of the meeting that we request the First Presidency to instruct the bishops of adjacent wards that it would be expected of them to patronize Saltaire this coming season and use their influence to have others to do so. And the motion was carried, end quote. So you can see how some of this was done, too. The Saltaire business was owned by the church. Business was dying. They were going to instruct bishops to send their congregants to patronize it so that it could get some money. We do know that women in primary and the youth groups were instructing youth to not marry a man who smoked, drank, and sweared. So... Little girls were being taught what kind of good husband they should have at the time, and little boys were being taught what kind of husband to be. On Sunday, August 31st, 1902, Rudger Clausen begins recording in his diary that they are starting to switch out water, being substitute for for wine, and quoted the revelation bearing this question. So by 1902, they're starting to switch out sacrament, wine, and put in water. This is going to kind of coincide with what's happening with the wine mission as well, and we'll talk about that in the next episode. On Sunday, April 12, 1903, Claussen reports, quote, Price, Utah, clear and cold, 8.30 a.m., meeting the High Council at President Reuben G. Miller's, President Miller presiding, a resolution in regard to liquor traffic was passed. The resolution provided that members of the church engaged in the saloon business and all who patronized saloons were to be handled on their fellowship if they did not repent. A resolution to support the Mammoth Reservoir Scheme and Canal was also passed. By this enterprise, it was shown that 10,000 acres of land would be brought under cultivation and reclaimed, end quote. We learned two things from that little journal entry, which is the church told people how to vote and what resolutions to support, and they were starting to crack down on Mormon saloon owners in 1903. On Thursday, October 1st, 1903, we know that one of the apostles, Elder Cowley, attends the Malad State Conference, Malad in uh, southern Idaho, and 
apparently there was a movement sweeping through southeastern Idaho where all the young people were very much addicted to the use of tobacco. So they had to go and sort of reprimand the youth for smoking too much. The apostles would tour the rest of the Mormon Bible Belt, as they called the Book of Mormon Belt, and they would admonish people to kick their dirty habits. Apparently, in one of the stakes in Morgan, Utah, um, some of the councilmen failed to observe the word of wisdom, and so they had to have a whole talk on the subject. On April 14, 1904, First Presidency and Apostles decide to resume selling liquor at church resort Saltaire due to the fact that no non-Mormons were coming. Their call to ask bishops to have people patronize it didn't work, so they start selling alcohol again. Now, at this time, we have to talk about something else really quick, and that's marijuana, because marijuana sort of comes into the state. So a lot of the people from the colonies in Mexico had been introduced to the marijuana plant. They had smoked it oftentimes instead of tobacco, something they used. And sometimes the wealthier in the communities would use alcohol and the poor would use marijuana. So it kind of filters into Utah. And we know that Mormon saints, early Mormon saints were smoking marijuana. And it really wasn't a problem until, you know, the 1910s, 1915, when the church decides to to ban it. And I'm going to link an article about that too. There's some great um, articles about the Ogden newspaper that talks about marijuana. In 1911, Joseph F. Smith defines why, defends why there's still a bar in the church-owned Hotel Utah, which is now the Joseph Smith Memorial Building. He says, quote, The people who visit us want something to wet up with once in a while, and unless it's provided for them, they will go somewhere else. And instead of beholding and viewing the beauty of Zion, they will go where they will see everything that is not beautiful and that which is not good, end quote. This also gives some insight. You know, the church, the LDS Church, recently built the City Creek Mall. It came under a lot of criticism, especially when you drive down Salt Lake City and you see billboards of scantily dressed women. They're advertising for a standard that Mormons are not to adhere to. And I think it's a similar justification that people have to come here. Tourism is a thing. That's one, that's one way to justify this behavior. Meanwhile, in Mexico, Apostle John Henry Smith in 1905 records while he is traveling in Mexico that, quote, I have seen no evidences of immorality or drunkenness, although everybody drinks alcohol. Many, both men and women, boys and girls are smokers, end quote. Like I said, tobacco and marijuana were very popular at that time. It's in July 5th of 1906 that the first presidency, Quorum of Twelve Apostles and Presiding Patriarch began consistently using water and not wine in their own sacraments. According to Barris, Apostle Henry Smith specifically notes in his diary, quote, We partook of the sacrament. President Joseph F. Smith blessed it. Water and not wine was used. End quote. Joseph F. Smith personally stopped drinking wine at a temple meeting sacrament in December of 1902. When this first came up for discussion by apostles on January 7, 1903, Hiram M. Smith criticized this practice. But by 1903, and certainly up until 1906, it was they were using it in their they were using water in their own sacraments. But up until 1903, they know that they were using wine in the temple still. Now the topic of prohibition starts showing up, and early Mormons are talking about it. Young women's groups are talking about it. It becomes kind of the political issue. 
Apostle John Henry Smith records in his diary on Sunday, July 12th, 1908, that, quote, at 2 p.m. a temperance meeting was held in the tabernacle. President F.M. Lyman presiding, the tabernacle sang three numbers and a Sunday school choir, one. Dr. P.A. Baker spoke 40 minutes on temperance. The congregation was a fair one. The day had been very hot, end quote. So they have, you know, temperance meetings coming back to the tabernacle. Barris says that on, it's on October 4th, 1908, that the word of wisdom and temperance really starts to take root because the opening address by President Joseph F. Smith not only sets the theme of the conference on the subject of the word of wisdom and temperance, but his remarks were adopted by a vote of the conference as well, as will be seen by the subjoined resolution in the conference report. All three members of the First Presidency of the Church and the President of the Quorum of the Twelve had treated the subject in their opening remarks of the conference, making a united presentation on the subject of the LDS word of wisdom and temperance. Now, this is important because Joseph F. Smith, it's under his reign that we really start doing a modern uh, word of wisdom. Joseph F. Smith is considered by a lot of fundamentalists to not, um, at this point, to not be a true prophet of God, at least a prophet whose authority they don't follow. So it's at this time in the early 1900s that we sort of see a split of fundamentalist interpretations of the Word of Wisdom and LDS. This is why LDS take a more teetotaler position and fundamentalists are a little bit more flexible sometimes. Back to Barris, who says, however clear this address was on the official position of the LDS Church on the Word of Wisdom and Temperance, following the passage of the resolution by unanimous vote of the conference, there arose some questions in political circles nationally and in Utah as to the proper methods of implementing the resolution. The address and res- resolution calling for means of implementing temperance in Utah became a political football. The resultant controversy seemed to come to a head in January and February of 1909, causing Senator Reed Smoot to write the subjoined letter to President Smith, expressing his fears that the address and accompanying resolution were being used for political purposes. He suggested to the president of the church, while affirming his own staunch support of the word of wisdom and of temperance, that it would be wiser politically to delay legislative action until the heat of the controversy that the resolution had caused and had a chance to subside. In February of 1909, President Joseph F. Smith wrote a letter on the letterhead of the First Presidency to three prominent political leaders in Utah, deploring the fact that the address and resolution of the October 1908 General Conference had been used for political purposes. He reaffirmed the position of the church in favor of temperance, but deplored the efforts of politicians to use the stand of the church politically. He reaffirmed also the statement of the First Presidency of 1907 on the separation of church and state. And I'm attaching that in Claire Barris's um, notes, so you can look at those statements that they made. During 1908, B.H. Roberts has a weakness for alcohol, and it seems to cause a problem with him and other members of the council. In 1908, Seymour B. Young recorded that Roberts had, quote, many times much worse for liquor in so much that his brethren and council have to take up a labor with him, end quote. They had to sort of have an intervention with B.H. Roberts about his use of alcohol. In 1909, the First Presidency uh, sends out a letter where they talk about the elderly who lack in observing the word of wisdom. And this is true. The older generation would have still taken on their sort of frontier understanding of the word of wisdom as as temperance, not prohibition. And so they're not exactly observing it the way that they want to. And, you know, this makes sense because, you know, even my my grandfather of that generation— was a smoker, and I could never quite wrap my head around how a Mormon could be a smoker, but there they were. 
On February 16, 1909, the temperance movement starts to impact church-state relations. Written on the letterhead of the First Presidency, there was this charge that the church was engaging in politics, and President Smith tries to refute that. And there's this sort of back and forth, like Claire Bear says, it's a political football. Are we using temperance to further political agenda, or they are informed by each, that, and the other? And again, I'll attach those so you can read those. At this point, we know in the early 1900s, they start denying people temporal recommends for smoking. And that's, it's not necessarily an official thing, but it's on a case-by-case basis. The fight between prohibition and temperance is still happening largely. And in 1909, prohibition was a burning issue in Utah. Heber J. Grant, George Albert Smith, and David O. McKay urged Utah communities to eliminate liquor altogether. But Smoot, who supported the local option, helped defeat statewide prohibition. As the only apostle opposing prohibition, he was strongly criticized by his constituents. By 1909, prohibition advocates were arguing that Utah was among less than a dozen remaining saloon states, that is, states which had not restricted alcohol statewide or through a local government option. That year, the state legislature considered two, quote, dry bills. One was killed by Republican senators, and the other, which passed the legislature, was vetoed by Republican Governor William Spry. This is a perfect example of how outside societal issues and politics are influencing Mormon rhetoric because prohibition starts to really take off all over the state, and they're putting pressure on Utah for being a saloon state. Apostles have to deal with this, incorporating it into their doctrine without it seen as a political move. On April 5th, 1910, Joseph F. Smith instructs bishops and stake presidents that payment of tithing and observance of word of wisdom are necessary for Mormons to obtain temple recommends. Smith also said, quote, suicides who are willful should not be buried in temple robes or have public funeral, but local authorities must be the judges of their state of mind when committing the act and act accordingly, unquote. By 1911, Republicans still opposed a statewide law prohibiting alcohol, but they did go along with legislation that it provided for a local option. With the local option, most rural towns passed dry laws, but urban centers like Salt Lake City and Ogden did not. Now, an interesting side note, from 1911 to 1916, there was a short-lived Jewish agricultural colony in Clarion, San Pete County. It's a really rare non-Mormon settlement, according to Barris, inhabited exclusively by Jewish immigrants, primarily from Russia and their children. Elsewhere, the immigrants often tended to concentrate in particular neighborhoods within larger communities. In Bingham Canyon alone, there were pejoratively nicknamed Greek Town, Jap Town, Bohunk Town, and Frog Town. Frog Town had French Canadians and Bohunk Town had uh, Southern Slavic immigrants. Ethnic community fostered by benevolent and fraternal societies, newspapers, coffee houses, boarding houses, and sometimes churches was only temporary for many groups, given the booms and busts of the mining industry, which provided major employment for many. But there were these little communities, and inside they had their own sort of interpretations of all these things, including coffee houses and saloons. During 1913, we start seeing prohibition really taking off in Utah. Decorated beer trucks in Salt Lake City were faced with prohibition resistance. And this is of note. In October 3rd of 1914, President Joseph Smith, Brigham Young Jr., and Wilford Woodruff had all issued instructions to the church or to the Sisters of the Relief Society 
and the church concerning their proper role in ministrations to the sick. The practices mentioned in this letter of 1914 had begun in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints prior to April 1842 and had continued in the church down to the time of the circular letter of the First Presidency. Here's what the letter said, quote, Respecting females administering for the healing of the sick, he further remarked, there could be no evil in it. If God gave his sanction by healing, there could be no more sin in any female laying hands on and praying for the sick than in wetting the face with water. It is no sin for anybody to administer that has faith or if the sick has faith to be healed by their administrations, end quote. Joseph F. Smith continued instructions by saying, quote, It was according to Revelation that the sick should be nursed with herbs and mild food and not by the hand of an enemy, end quote. So what this means is Relief Society saints, uh, women, are still giving each other blessings. They're anointing herbs and healing oils and sometimes um, alcohol, and they're giving blessings. And this still continues in some fundamentalist groups today because they never got the, the memo from the LDS church that we can't do that anymore. In 1914, we see various temperance groups organized by the Utah Federation of Prohibition and Betterment League as a way to kind of get people excited about prohibition. In 1915, Utah passes its first anti-marijuana law. This is where they restrict it and they have to tell, you know, saints to stay away from it as well. Some saints are starting to criticize Joseph F. Smith at this point. Um, saying that he is fighting prohibition. Prohibition now is becoming very publicly accepted in the state of Utah, and Joseph F. Smith is still trying to fight it. People are beginning to question, question his motives, and some cite his earlier drinking as a reason why he maybe might be hypocritical on it. In 1917, the newly elected Governor Bamberger identified enactment of prohibition legislation as the first duty of the legislature. So he really pushes it on them, saying that we have to adopt prohibition. The prohibition movement called for the adoption of laws to prohibit the manufacture, sale, and consumption of all alcoholic beverages. Utah did not enact prohibition legislation until 1917, but when they did, they became the 24th state to adopt statewide prohibition. However, since Many of the other 24 states had already passed local option laws. Utah was one of the last states to pass legislation regulating the manufacture and consumption of alcohol. From 1917 to 1933, although both Utah law and U.S. Constitution outlawed alcohol, it was still being produced, sold, and consumed during the period of prohibition from 1917 to 1933. And public officials were often frustrated in their attempts to enforce the law. It was very difficult because you had bootleggers and speakeasies. Barris says that in their study of prohibition in southeastern Utah, Jody Bailey and Robert S. McPherson found that, quote, Mormons and Gentiles, miners and cowboys, farmers and businessmen, Mexicans and Navajos all trafficked in liquor. Many, but certainly not all the violators of prohibition were immigrants from southern and eastern Europe for whom moderate alcohol consumption was a long established way of life. In some communities, local law enforcement were involved in the local alcohol business. Um, September 21st, 1919, Peace Treaty Restoration of the Gospel was a discourse given by President Heber J. Grant in the Salt Lake Tabernacle at the Salt Lake State Conference on the 96th anniversary of the visit of Angel Moroni to Joseph Smith. And in it, he talks a lot about the word of wisdom and the church and all of these things and talks about his own struggles. 
On January 16, 1920, the 18th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution goes into full effect, prohibiting the manufacture, production, and sale of alcohol. President Heber J. Grant is a fervent supporter of the amendment and believe it's divinely mandated because it's it outlaws items forbidden by the word of wisdom. So they see this as the government is doing this um, and it's God's will. Between 1923 and 1932, Utah law enforcement officials uncovered 448 distilleries, 702 stills, thousands of pieces of distilling apparatus, and 47,000 gallons of spirits, malt liquor, wine, and cider, and 332,000 gallons of mash. Yet, according to Barris, this was only a small percentage of what was actually being produced, as practically every community and every neighborhood in the larger cities housed an illegal still. One of the easiest types of bootleg alcohol to produce was known as sugar whiskey, and it required a 100-pound bag of sugar, a sack of cornmeal, and a sack of yeast, which were mixed together and boiled in a 50-gallon drum. By May, of, May 17, 1930, there was an international hygiene exposition in Dresden, Germany, and it included LDS exhibits on the Word of Wisdom. This was the church's first formal participation in national or international exposition. The church participates in this and sort of shows off what they've been doing all along. In 1930, the church's health code, the word of wisdom, would have been seen. The fact that they were in Germany was a big deal, and they announced it, that they, you know, were able to to have this. And they distributed, they distributed 250,000 missionary pamphlets at the exhibition. In 1931, the First Presidency talks about the harmful uses and effects of tobacco. In 1932, they begin a re-emphasis on the word of wisdom, really focusing on tobacco. Tobacco is still a problem. Heber J. Grant launches a campaign against the use of tobacco and asks for total abstinence from alcohol, tobacco, tea, and coffee. This is when tea and coffee really get lumped in with uh, tobacco and alcohol. In May of 1932, Apostle Stephen L. Richards tells First President St. Quorum of the Twelve that he will resign as an apostle rather than apologize for his general conference talk, which says the church is putting too much emphasis on the word of wisdom. He later confesses his heir to Heber J. Grant on the 26th of May and retains his position. On February 21st, 1933, the church began a six-day commemoration of the 100th anniversary of the Word of Wisdom Revelation with special observances in every ward. So they claim 1933, it's a 100-year anniversary of the Word of Wisdom, and it's gone through so many changes as we've talked about, but they celebrate it as a way to reinforce that it's very important. Throughout the 30s, they go through several more bills talking about what to do with things like tobacco. On July 27, 1933, James E. Talmadge dies at 71 of a throat infection. During 1935, Hubie Brown is appointed chairman of Utah's first liquor commission. Hubie Brown also forms a lifelong allegiance with the Democratic Party, which led to an unsuccessful run for political office and an unpleasant term of service as first chairman of Utah's Liquor Control Commission from 1935 to 1937. By August of 1944, the First Presidency instructs its Hotel Utah to stop serving liquor. After Prohibition is ended, they continue to serve liquor, and they say don't serve liquor anymore. During 1946, Apostle Matthew Cowley spent much of his life serving in alcoholic rehabilitation programs, counseling alcoholics and their family, and speaking to AA groups. 
Presiding Bishopric Legrand Richards approves installation of a cigarette vending machine in a bus terminal of the Church's Temple Square Hotel in 1949. And Temple Council of the First Presidency Quorum of Twelve and Patriarch to Church decides to allow beer commercials of church-owned KSL on television stations in 1951. And this is a fun fact for me. On October 12th, 1954, Intermountain-based companies of national stature that were not controlled by the LDS Church but did have Mormon executives from their inceptions um, at various times are Swire Coca-Cola USA. So, yay for Diet Coke. I'm actually drinking it right now as, as I talk, so it's perfect. On February 1st, 1960, the First Presidency issues a letter that every church member eight years of age or over must have a recommend to enter the temple. Of course, it was a little bit different back then. Before issuing recommends, bishops will assure themselves by searching inquiry that their recipients are free from all kinds of immoral practices, that they have no affiliation in sympathy or otherwise with any of the apostate groups that are running counter to the established order of the church, that they sustain the local and general authorities of the church, are full tithe payers, or will covenant to become such that they observe the word of wisdom, abstaining from tea, coffee, tobacco, and liquor, and that they are fully worthy as evidenced by their observance of the whole gospel law, including abiding by all the conditions of their temple obligations, end quote. So in the 60s, we have this sort of idea that to enter the temple, you have to pass those questions. By June 1st of 1969, cigarette ads are banned on broadcasts of LDS churches, radio, and television stations in Utah, Washington State, Missouri, California, and New York. In 1973, the First Presidency letter urges 78,000 Mormons in Washington State to vote against a referendum to allow 19-year-olds to purchase and consume alcoholic beverages. On January 17th, 1974, the Rolling Stone publishes an article, quote, The Mormon Word, No Hair, Sex, or Three Dog Night, which tells of the ASBYU social office's cancellation of a scheduled appearance by the group Three Dog Night, immediately after a conference addressed by Boyd K. Packer. The article quotes Mark Alexander, BYU social vice president, quote, In light of Elder Packer's talk, we are taking a closer look at the groups we are booking, and we are making sure they are in harmony with church standards, end quote. In the previous October General Conference, Packer referred to the shabbiness, the irreverence, the immorality, and the addictions associated with many contemporary entertainers and intimated that music itself was inherently evil. So in 74, BYU cancels on Three Dog Night. On June 18, 1977, First Presidency Commission editorial appears in the Desert News in which the church officially disclaims, quote, Fads advocated under the guise of the word of wisdom by unauthorized persons with unwarranted claims respecting health. It, does, it also completely disclaims any, any sponsorship or endorsement of such teachers, remedies, foods, or fads that use other phases of religion to give further appearance of credibility to their projects. The editorial re- reaffirms the Mormon view of medical care to, quote, refuse to accept assistance from the highly skilled men and women now available may be to reject the very help that could save a life. Some patients are known to have died from disease, which natural remedies could not relieve, but which proven medical practices could have cured, end quote. So in the 70s, we see this movement away from natural healing and herbs and things like that. In 1979, there's an editorial in the Desert News that talks about medical quackery and other health practitioners and says to trust, you know, regular traditional medical care. Of course, most Mormon fundamentalists don't get that memo because they're not paying attention. And many of their prophets are 
also, you know, doctors or chiropractors or things like that. And a lot of the natural health food stores in Utah still today are owned by members of fundamentalist religions, including and most particularly the AUB. We have our essential oils like uh, Young Living Farms, and we have a lot of the health food stores. I, I believe, I think it's Sherland's Natural Health that's AUB as well. But the LDS Church says stay away from the natural healing and go to more of the traditional healing. On April 15, 1983, the unofficial newspaper Brigham Young University, the University Post, reports interview with director of Standards Department. He acknowledges that students suspected of cheating, illegal drug use, stealing, or homosexuality are expelled from BYU if they refuse to take a polygraph test. BYU Security has licensed polygraph examiners, and in separate articles, newspaper photographers report observing church security using specially trained dogs to search for bombs prior to public meetings attended by general authorities in Temple Square. During 1994, the Tribune starts talking about the ups and downs of Prozac in in Utah and the role of prescription drugs. They talk about this underlying problem of housewives being overwhelmed and taking a lot of drugs. During 2002, LA Times reports that Utah ranks number one in the antidepressant and narcotic drug usage. July 5th of 2007, a new Brigham Young University study using sophisticated eye tracking technology showed that most adolescents, alcohol advertisers, responsible drinking messages might as well be written in invisible ink. And then we've had some movement as it relates to marijuana usage in the last few years. So the LDS Church in February 2016 released a statement supporting efforts to legalize CBD oil in Utah, but not hold plant cannabis. So marijuana without the THC, basically. Here's what their statement said, quote, While we are not in a position to evaluate specific medical claims, the church understands that there are some individuals who may benefit from the medical use of compounds found in marijuana. For that reason, although the church opposes SB 73, it has raised no objection to SB 89. These two competing pieces of legislation take every different approach when it comes to issues like access, distribution, control, and the potential harm of the hallucinogenic compound THC. And then later that year, in the fall of 2016, the First Presidency released a letter in congregations in California, Nevada, and Arizona, which were states that were voting to legalize recreational cannabis, urging members to oppose legalization. And now this is a debate that's come back to Utah, and the Mormons are once again weighing in. It's been sort of a contentious issue, and I would say it is still an issue that is facing us today. There are, There's a movement to consider a ballot measure to legalize marijuana, medical marijuana, in Utah, and there's a group of opponents here, including Utah doctors, who think that it's a dangerous step. Uh, The LDS Church has cited some, I would say, questionable medical research. And I I wouldn't even say research. It's based on the opinions of a few doctors who don't like it, saying that they should not support it. This has outraged a lot of Mormons. And from personal experience and from articles that I've read, Mormons aren't really listening. I know I've talked to a surprising amount of faithful Mormons who use marijuana and they don't feel bad about it marijuana with the THC. At Sunstone, we've hosted a few panels on people talking about this because they see the the needs. According to a recent poll in the Salt Lake Tribune, Hinckley Institute of Politics poll, two-thirds of voters in Utah, where more than 60% of the population still identifies as Mormon, support the medical marijuana proposals. But the church 
is, you know, weighing in on these issues. The lieutenant governor in Utah was faced with a lawsuit for even putting putting this uh, proposition on the ballot. You know, the LDS Church has some backing in that in that lawsuit, and I believe the lawsuit was has now been removed. But he, on May 11, thousand eighteen. The LDS Church released a statement on their newsroom website. It's called Utah Medical Marijuana Initiative. It says, quote, The proposed Utah Medical Marijuana Initiative is a matter of great controversy in this state. The negative effects and consequences of marijuana use on an individual's family and society at large are well known. There are also those who claim that it has medicinal benefits for those in some circumstances. Accordingly, the church asked a Salt Lake City law firm for a legal analysis of the proposed initiative to be submitted to the voters next fall. We wanted to know what the initiative would actually do. If adopted, the law firm the law firm's memorandum with its analysis follows. That memorandum raises grave concerns about this initiative initiative and the serious adverse consequences that could follow if it were adopted. We invite all to read the attached memorandum and to make their own judgment. And then they attach the Curtin McConkie mem- memorandum the, and they claim that, you know, some of the threats would people could grow their own marijuana and this would be bad. They and because they could evade purchase and use limits, it would create significant challenges for law enforcement. It would disrupt religious freedom. Marijuana would be sold through med- <laughs> dispensaries and not licensed pharmacies. The state is required to destroy records of cannabis sales after 60 days, which would hurt law enforcement. People could get free samples. Lots of Utahns will qualify for medical marijuana cards. So everybody would just be smoking weed and high and calm and peaceful. And we can't have that. And they go on just to cite some science. Again, I'm cynical about this, but the research that they cite is clearly, clearly myopic. It's very disappointing to see just because this issue has become so personal for so many people here. I, I know so many people with health, chronic health issues, and this is one of the only things that really those. So it just seems like such a careless approach to helping people who need it. But I'm going to go ahead and link to that so you can see the current struggle. So it's going to be interesting to see what happens in the next few years in Utah with this subject. And then of course, that brings us into modern times. So I'm going to let uh, you guys look at the sources and read about that. That's That's a long, long episode on the history of the word of wisdom. But hopefully you can see some of the developments and we'll talk about the Dixie Wine Mission on the next episode. Special thanks to Claire Von Barris for that brilliant outline that he let us use. And we'll see you next episode. The song you just heard is called My Disguise by Mikkel Douse. Her album is available for purchase on iTunes or Apple Music. Thanks for listening.